why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians uh, chapter 2, uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21 today. I want to just begin with a story, uh, and, and there's a reason why I'm going to share this story, not only because it's a really cool story and I just had to put it into a message and then make it work, uh, but, but because I believe it actually is a, a, an incredible metaphor for the necessity of building our lives on the right center, on the right foundation. And that when we don't have the right foundation, when we don't have the right center, when we don't understand the gospel, uh, we can end up going through life with no direction instead of building, digging ourselves into holes, going deeper and deeper until life comes to its close and we ask the question, what have I been living for? And that happens all the time. There is a man, uh, a famous man, kind of folk legend in England. Uh, he's referred to as the Mole of Hackney. His name is William Little. William Little uh, lived in this Victorian, basically this Victorian estate. Uh, and in the 60s, decided he was going to build himself a wine cellar in his basement. He went down into the wine cellar, uh, into the basement, and began to dig, to dig out this wine cellar. But something crazy happened, and that is, is that William Little discovered a total obsession for digging, and he continued to dig for the next 40 years. For 40 years, his neighbors over the years, over the decades, would begin to complain the city and complain that, hey, we can hear this guy digging literally under our house at night, and the city never did anything about it until one day the road in front of William Little's house collapsed. Because William Little had not just dug a hole for a wine cellar over 40 years with just simply a shovel and a homemade pulley uh, in which he hollowed out a web of tunnels and caverns some 26 feet deep, spreading up to 20 meters in every direction. Caused, basically, it, it caused the road in front of the house to collapse, which then finally the city got involved, and they came and they saw the house, this beautiful mansion that he owned, had become unlivable. He was so obsessed with digging holes that he had stopped living life with people, taking care of his home. His, his roof had caved in, and they said, hey, this house has to be, he, he can't live here, it's not livable. So they took William Little and they put him in the top floor of a condo so that he could not dig any longer. Now, that story is just awesome. Uh, and I, and, and, but here's what's fascinating is that every time Little has been interviewed about why he did what he did, he just said, I don't know, I guess I just like digging. There was no explanation for what he gave his life to. And what he gave his life to was a life of isolation that actually ended up collapsing upon himself. And I just found this to be a profound metaphor for the holes that we can dig for ourselves the ways that we lose our center and lose sight of who we are called to be and what it is that it, what it means to actually even be a human being. He's called the mole man of Hackney. There's something almost, it, it, as I was talking with Evan, it's like a Kafka story called the, there's a Kafka story called The Burrow where this little mole creature digs these endless circles to protect its, its home and its hoard, but never having inter, any interaction with others, only a paranoia of the outside world. There's a, there is this inward turning paranoid kind of existential crisis. And I see this in this story about this man, but I also see it 
metaphorically being played out in lives all around me and even at times in my own life. And this is why, as Christians, we need to fully understand that we have been commissioned to bring to the world the center, the foundation that makes existence make sense. And that message is the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is a central doctrine that has been held tenaciously to by the church from its very beginning. It's not a doctrine, as some believe, that wasn't discovered until the Reformation. There's consensus from the early patristic fathers all the way through the Reformation, and that is the doctrine of justification. Now, justification is a confusing doctrine, but here is the center. This is this is the centerpiece of our existence, of our faith. It's how we can build our lives upon a foundation rather than dig holes for ourselves in which we find our lives destroyed. And, and what I want us to understand today is the doctrine of justification. So I want to begin, begin here. This is the definition that I kind of put together through just a lot of reading and thinking. But justification is God's gracious intervention in Jesus to bring us back into alignment with himself. It's all about a restoration of relationship. That our relationship with him is now right, not because of what we have done for God, but because of what God through Jesus has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, I inserted instead of justification, another word that I think is actually really helpful because in English, the word justify often is connected to the idea of justifying bad behavior. In fact, the definition I was given of justification when I first became a believer was just as if I never did it. And I'm like, but I did. And so it wasn't a very helpful definition. Uh, I, I think it, sometimes our clever ways of remembering things actually diminish the value and the depth of the word. But rectification, uh, which, is, which is what Fleming Rutledge, uh, one of my favorite uh, Christian thinkers, uh, utilizes instead of the word justification to bring clarity, this rectification of relationship that comes through faith in Christ alone includes our participation in his life by the power of the Spirit. Uh, one thing that has happened over time is there has been too much separation between the concepts of justification being made right with God through the atoning work of Jesus uh, and sanctification our participation in the life of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we can't talk about justification apart from sanctification. They, they are interconnected. Um, our, the, the evidence that we are justified is played out in our life, working itself out in love by the power of the Spirit. And so here is the the definition that I want us to think through because this is the foundation. And, and, and I just, a, a really simple way of framing this, I, I think that Thomas Oden uh, in his book, The Justification Reader, which I'm reading right now, is really good. He just said justification is essentially the opposite of condemnation. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty helpful. Let me, let me share with you the key verse before we jump into Galatians that really establishes the foundation. It's, it's often a, a passage that's utilized um, in sharing the gospel with the lost, and that is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. And it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness of God comes to us 
not through the law, but the law and the prophets all point toward the gospel. And he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everybody falls under this umbrella. Everybody comes up short. When we compare our lives to the perfection of God, we are lost, we are alienated from God, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Religion says live like this and God will accept you. The gospel says you can't. The gospel says God has, through his son, accepted us, now live like this. There is that combination of both justification and sanctification into a harmonious transformation of the believer into the likeness of Jesus. But here he goes on, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right. The relationship is realigned by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Such a powerful passage. And now we're gonna connect that to where we're at in Galatians as Paul continues to defend the gospel against those false teachers that have crept into the churches in the area of Galatia that are proclaiming that salvation comes through trusting Jesus and keeping Old Testament law or Torah uh, is the word that we, we utilize to define the Old Testament law. And Paul, if you remember correctly from last week, is sharing with, within this letter a conflict that had occurred that these false teachers were using to undermine his authority. And that conflict was with Peter himself and the apostles. And it happened, it was called the Antioch Incident. And as we saw last week, that Paul said of this confrontation uh, that these people, these churches had heard about, he said, yes, it is true that I confronted Peter to his face for he stood condemned because what had Peter done? Peter had basically, under the influence of another group of Judaizers, vocal Jewish Christians had come in and they were saying, listen, it's fine. Yes, we put our faith in Jesus, but we cannot abandon the Old Testament law. We cannot abandon the Torah. And Peter was so fearful of these, of these people, this group, that he was willing to play the hypocrite. That is, to not hold to his convictions, but allow the fear of man to override his authority. And that fear of man not only led to hypocrisy, but it ultimately led to him falling into the trappings of legalism. That is, that he allowed the fear of man to lead to hypocrisy, and then in order to make the hypocrisy, to justify the hypocrisy, maybe if we add this law to it, I'll be justified in the wrong behavior then. So you see how the path just leads downward. And Paul said, I withstood him to his face. And this is where our argument picks up today. So we begin with this. Uh, and what we're going to look at is three things. We're going we're to look at what it means to be justified by faith, what it means to be dead to law, and then finally, what does it mean to be alive in Christ? And all of these flow out of our right understanding of justification. 
So what does it mean to be justified? Well, look at, look at what he says here. We ourselves, he's still, he's still retelling the story of, his, of this conflict with Peter. And so he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He says, yet we have known that a person, so he's saying, listen, Peter, yes, we are both Jews by birth. We weren't Gentiles. We understood Torah and we kept the law faithfully. But that, you know, Peter, is not how we were saved. This is what he's saying. And he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So notice here, out of the gate, there is these, it's really fascinating, there's, there's these triads, uh, justified, works of the law, and faith in Christ Jesus is used three times. And there, it's used three times specifically, uh, not for, it's not just redundancy. Um, Paul is setting up a very intense, airtight argument. And it begins with this. Our justifi- we just consider what justification is, but we have to ask the question, because it, this is the complexity, especially in the time in which we live, uh, of uh, the, the possibility of getting our foundation wrong of not having the right center, of not building on the right thing and of digging a hole for ourselves. And we do not wanna dig a religious hole for our lives. That's the worst kind of hole to dig. Uh, And so we begin with this question of what does it actually mean to put our faith in Christ? That's an important question. How should we interpret faith in Jesus Christ? You know, when I was with my dad up in Alaska, um, over New Year's Eve, my dad said something really interesting to me. He said, he said that he believes in God and that he believes that Jesus is his only son. He even went as far as to say that he believes that Jesus died for the world. But when I asked him um, about what makes you think that you're all right with Jesus, what makes you think that you're all right with Christ? And he said something really fascinating to me. He said, he goes, well, he goes, because I'm I'm a good person. I've done lots of good things. And what was really heartbreaking about that statement is that my dad would say that he has faith in Jesus by saying that he believes that Jesus is the son of God. But his answer to my question was a revelation that he did not actually understand what faith is. And so here we see, he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So for Paul and for the early church and even for the Jewish minds uh, that that come to the saving faith in Jesus, for Paul and for Peter, faith in Jesus, I don't know why it's doing that. I'm gonna just pull this out of my pocket so it doesn't do it. Uh, That faith in Jesus meant more than just believing that Jesus exists. In fact, James wrote, you believe that Jesus exists, so what? So do the demons and tremble. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. That faith is trust and reliance upon Jesus. I would even add to that, it is faithfulness or loyalty 
to Jesus. This is why it is so important that we understand Jesus' own words about justification. When he says in Matthew 12, verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. What does he mean by that? Because didn't we say that justification comes by faith in Christ alone, through grace alone? But what are we told about faith in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God that whoever, what, confesses with their lips, this is really important, what are the words, the three words that really the whole gospel is wrapped up in? Jesus is what? Not Jesus exists. That's two. <laughs> three words. Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. In other words, our justification is our casting ourselves in total dependence upon the kingship, the full work of Jesus. We're not just saying, I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you died for the sins of the world. Therefore, I'm saying, we're saying, no, that belief is not just the belief that he's there. It's the belief that allows him to accomplish something in and through us. It's a yieldedness to his authority. What is the essence of sin? Us being our own Lord, our own God, defining for ourselves what is right and wrong. What does it mean to come under the save, into a saving relationship with Christ? It means that we release, relinquish control of our lives and accept his authority, his rule, over our lives, his grace into our lives. It's not an intellectual idea. It's not even a religious feeling. Faith is more than that. It's an actual and active dependence upon and total commitment to what Jesus, who is the object of our total trust, has done for us, provides for us, and will yet do within us as we die to self and come alive with him by the gift of the Holy Spirit. I, I think that this is something that is deeply misunderstood within the church today because our culture, our society, has driven into our hearts and minds the fundamental belief that we if we want to be happy, we have to take control of our lives, that our life is ultimately about us, that we are the centers of our own universe. But has that led to happiness for anyone? It's a false lie. Depression continues to increase. Suicide continues to increase. We live longer, we have more, and yet we are probably the most unhappy generation that has ever existed. What we have given to our kids, it just gets more and more amplified. I mean, think about our children. My, my children are, is the first generation of kids to not even have a memory of what it's like to exist without an iPhone. Everything in our, in our, in our existence is driven by the ability to make everything work for my personal needs and wants. The gospel pushes back against that. It's like, it's not faith that Jesus exists. It is putting your entire weight upon him, leaning into him in such a way, as I like to say, faith is a disposition toward Christ that allows Christ the right to be Christ in and through our lives. 
So, so look, what, look what he says here. This even, this even shows us something even deeper that I think is really profound. Notice that it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What is he talking about there uh, in regards to faith in Jesus? It's trust and reliance on Jesus, faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus, because Jesus is someone to be known. He is alive. He is with us. The living Christ intervene. Think about for both Paul and for Peter, Jesus, think about P, uh, Paul's actual conversion. Jesus showed up. It's, re, it's, it's a relational, it's an act of knowing and an act of committing. What happened when Paul experienced his conversion, Jesus confronted him with his living presence. And what did, he, and what did Paul say? The relational unveiling, I am Jesus. And then Paul says, what do you want me to do, Lord? Commitment. Total yieldedness. And I think that this relational act of knowing and then an act of committing through faith, so we also have believed to the one known in order to be justified by faith. See how he says that three times? But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed or committed in Christ in order to be justified by our faith in Christ. Uh, this is a really beautiful structure. What this reveals to us is something that the scripture, first of all, I want it to be clear that the, there, was, there was movements uh, because of a loss of the gospel when the Reformation first came about, when Luther, uh, when Luther was writing and confronting and challenging the Catholic Church, we need to understand uh, the tendency within church history and the tendency within our own lives and uh, within our own culture toward pendulum swings. And for Luther, the, the, the lack of understanding of the gospel led him to very intense extremes in regards to the relationship between the gospel and works. And I want to be clear here that the issue is not good works. The issue is a return to Old Testament law. Really, the issue is law, it's religion. It's the, it's the attempt to reach God in our own efforts, uh, in our own ability, to return to something that Jesus has already fully fulfilled. Uh, but the issue is not good works, because good works, and this is how we, you know, keep, keep in mind, Luther thought that James should be removed from the Bible. Uh, we believe that James is inspired. And what James is saying is that our saving faith in Christ will be evidenced in a life that lives according to the law of love, as we'll see in just a minute. In other words, that our works, we are saved by a faith that works. It's a faith that allows Jesus to work in and through us. My dad has a faith in Jesus, but he's not allowing Jesus to work in and through him. And all of us have people that we love that misunderstand the gospel, and you may be that person today, where your faith in Christ is nothing more than an intellectual assent to the idea that he is who he said he is, or it may even be a religious feeling that you experience on Sunday when you come and worship, but is it a living reality for you day in and day out? Because our commitment to Christ means that he is Lord and we are not. It's a faith that works. This is how we are justified. 
So what does Paul go on to say? Look at, the, look at the, this next reality, for we are dead to law. Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, that is, if I return to Torah, if I return uh, to Jewish practice rather than dependence upon Christ and the empowerment of his spirit, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Remember, Paul's gonna continue to build on this idea that the law was incapable of saving anyone. That the law was given, he says, the law is good and perfect. If the law had not come, I would not know what sin is. He refers to it in Galatians as a schoolmaster. In other words, the law is like a plumb line from heaven. All it was able to do was to show how broken and bent we are and our need for God. And so what, but this argument's, this argument's dense. Uh, what is meant, A, by the works of the law? So this is what Paul is continuing to push back upon, uh, especially in his confrontation with Peter and even what he's dealing with in these false teachers in the region of Galatia, uh, that the fullness of time had come and that falling in line with Torah, i.e. law, is not the way now under the new covenant with Jesus to fall in line with God. And so what Paul is showing is basically two paths of transformation, relying on Jesus or conforming to Torah's regulations. You can either rely on Jesus or you can try to conform yourself to the law, but obviously that hasn't worked. And so he's saying, Peter, why would you go back to that? Why would you go back to the very thing that Jesus has fulfilled and has put away? What was the purpose of the law? The law was good. And I think that this is, this is really powerful. I mean, when we look at Paul's argument here, he says, if the, path, if the path of transformation is trusting in Jesus and living by the power of the Holy Spirit apart from the law, don't you see that that clearly violates the law? Therefore, wouldn't that make Jesus himself a sinner? Or wouldn't that make Jesus a servant of sin? He said, no. That doesn't make Jesus himself a servant of sin. What Paul shows is that the old lines that defined a sinner, a Gentile, and one that has been forgiven has been redrawn through the work of Jesus. The law that was given to protect a particular people from assimilating into the, into the pagan ways of the world until the seed came. And what is the seed? Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one that the law and the prophets looked forward to. I mean, all you have to do is read Isaiah 53, 11, thinking about the words that the prophet Isaiah spoke under the influence of the Spirit about the coming Messiah. And it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. How is it that Jesus actually brought salvation to the world by becoming a curse according to the law. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Cursed is he who hangs upon the tree. Jesus became accursed so that we could be made right. Jesus himself, his whole atoning death is a fundamental 
uh, aggression toward continuing in Torah because he is the fulfillment of it. And what we need to see is what Hebrews tells us is that all of it is shadows of the substance which is found in Christ. And I want you to understand this. When it comes to understanding what the law is and what does it mean by the works of the law um, is, is, is this. Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 15, what Paul is reminding Peter, and this is what is important for us as we build upon the right foundation, is that we, remember what Paul says, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing, literally, listen to the, 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 the severity of these words, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Peter, Paul is saying, you have gone back to creating separation between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus abolished the law, bringing about a whole new created order that he might make one people through his atoning work. Do not go back to Torah. We are Jews. We know the purpose of the law. We see its significance, but we also have been saved by the living Christ who died not only for us, but for the whole world. We're not about... Remember, for the Jews, election was about who's in and who is out. And sadly, for many Christians, it's still about that. But election in Scripture was never intended to be about who's in and who's out. God says, I chose you that through you I might reach all. And what Paul is reminding Peter of is the great commission that was given directly to Peter that they were to now go to all the world, to all nations, Reminding that Jesus has torn down the middle wall of separation. The line has been moved. (laughs) Inclusion is what the gospel declares. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So Paul is calling his Jewish brothers and sisters to follow God's lead by observing the new lines. Not drawing lines in the sand and pushing people out, saying you can't eat with us because you're not a Jew. And you need to actually go back to Jewish laws. No, the way to transformation is by the power of the Spirit, not by keeping Torah, not by keeping law. This is what I want us to understand, because what does it mean to be dead to the law then? He goes, for through the law, I died to law so that I might live to God. Because I have known actually, and I've been thinking about this, and it struck me as I prepared this message, and I'm I'm not here to attack this movement, but there is what's called the Messianic Jewish movement. And I have known non-Jewish friends who have moved toward that movement because for them, they feel that, that the relationship with Jesus is amplified by the practicing of Torah. And honestly, I asked, someone asked me this last week, um, you know, Josh, uh, some of us just function well through, you know, giving more concrete examples of how to do things. And I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not a very prescriptive preacher. And I'm not a prescriptive preacher purposefully because I actually don't really care what your practices are until they get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. So 
I know that scripture says pray without ceasing. But I also know that there is hundreds of ways to engage with God in prayer and many, many practices within the realm of prayer. What I care about is that you're in constant communion with the living Christ. And I think that what happens is that, yeah, you may not practice Torah, but you may create for yourself your own laws. And as Paul Zoll brilliantly said, if the, if the perfect law of God can't save us, what makes us think our own laws will? And we could be a church that I, I lay out for you all sorts of prescriptive teaching and hey, we need to do these things. I think spiritual practices are wonderful. There's, there's hundreds of disciplines, but here's the thing. Each one of you are hardwired differently. And how you commune and connect with God and how you feel close to him. Uh, we all are a little bit different. Now, there's certain things that we know. We, we know we should be a people of the script. We need to be people that are constantly in the word. But even how we study the word. I have Darcy right now is reading through the Bible read-through. It's, and she's doing it and she's being faithful to it. But it's killing her. Not because she doesn't love the Bible. She is never up in the morning without the Bible. It's just that she has a devotional style that has worked for her in her intimacy with Jesus. I like to read from Genesis to Revelation. She treats it more like a magic eight ball. I'm just joking. Uh, but she has, she, has, she has a weight. She journals. I, I don't journal. Am I wrong for not journaling? Maybe I would benefit. But it's not really my temperament. I know some people that practice very specific formulaic types of praying. I mean... Listen, why do you think there's divisions within, within orthodoxy? Why do you think there's so many different types of churches? Because over the last 2,000 years, people have created churches, communities, led churches that is, that is very much a reflection of their personal temperaments and biases. It's just a reality. And so I'm not, I'm not a high, high liturgy person. The closest you'll ever probably get to high liturgy at Door of Hope was I had you read the Apostles' Creed. And that was pushing it for me. Uh, and, and that's fine. And there's others. I have friends that, like, they feel close to God through, through beautiful arch. I, I love architecture, too. Uh, but, man, I'll, I've, I can feel close to God just hanging out in a city. And some people feel close to God in the woods. I watch too many horror movies. When I'm in the woods, I think that's where Jason is. And so for me, I don't enjoy the woods because that's where bad people are. And the city is the safe place uh, for existence. Some people like the suburbs. And we don't even have to understand that. <laughs> so my point is, is that what we have to hold tenaciously to as a church is that we cannot, we cannot allow our practices to replace our relationship. And that sounds so basic, but it's not. Because the temptation is always, if it's hard to build into, I mean, I think about being married for 21 years now, coming up on 22 years, the challenges it is to continually push in intentionally that my relationship with my wife can continue to grow uh, in, in intimacy, in personal knowledge. It, you don't just, we've been married that long, we don't have to try anymore. Uh, it requires tremendous effort. It takes effort to know my kids. It takes effort to know my wife. It takes effort to know my staff, my friends. If it's hard for us to know people we can see with our eyes, how hard is it to, uh, for us to know a God that we can't see? And, and, and this is the thing is what we do to make ourselves feel better is we actually create laws for ourselves uh, that replaces intimacy. But the moment you do that is the moment you begin the path toward what many Christians have come into my office and said, I'm in a real dry season. And then another way of saying that, the relationship feels dead. 
The relationship should never feel dead. And what Paul is encouraging Peter toward is, is the same thing he's encouraging you and I toward is that we must maintain this vibrancy of relationship. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is the beautiful paradigm shift of the gospel. This is what it means to be justified by faith. It's the move from law to love, from death to life. Torah has a positive function, but only as a temporary measure to set in place to provide protective discipline for the particular people out of which the seed would arise, and he had come, Jesus. And therefore, the shadow finds its form, its substance in Christ. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Notice, faith works through love. What are we told? That love is, in Romans 13, 8, uh, that love is, is the fulfillment of the law. Again, in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is only one debt that is never paid, and that is the debt of love. And let me just tell you that our discipline, our disciplining of our lives toward Jesus Christ must be compelled by the love that comes to us through a as the Spirit illuminates what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. We don't look through the cross, we continually look to it. It's our center. This is our justification. So, what does it mean then to be alive in Christ? We'll go to the final slide and close here. Galatians chapter two, verses 20 through 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe that Galatians two, verses 20 and 21, uh, which are two of my favorite passages in all of scripture, actually gives us essentially a definition of what saving faith is. To believe in Christ is to be crucified with him. Now, the crucifixion with Christ is not the loss of identity. I think there's this fear that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that I must decrease that he might increase, in the words of John the Baptist. And we think of this as some sort of like, like as we submit to Christ, as we give up our rights and our autonomy, as you know, I remember having this deep fear when I first came to faith that if I give my life to Jesus, he's not gonna let me make music anymore. Or he's, gonna, he's gonna send me to somewhere that I don't wanna be. Uh, he's gonna, and you know what? Some of those things are true. There's times where I've, I've felt Jesus asked me to put things down that I love. There are times where he's called, he's called our family to places that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves. But our obedience in that, our dying to self, is not dying to what does it mean to be Josh or who you are today. It's dying to the lie of who God never intended us to be so that we can come alive in him. That is our dependence on, on Jesus. When Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, present yourselves. I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. And look, notice the paradox of that, because a sacrifice, if we think about the sacrificial lamb, the one thing that they do not do is get off the altar. And what we need to understand is this, is the reason Paul tells us to daily do that for the reason Paul reminds the, the church in Galatia that we have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, is because the old man, the old woman, the flesh, has this incredible ability to resurrect. 
we have a temptation. If Jesus is the narrow path that leads to life, and that path is difficult, it's because there's a million ways in which we can fall. We can get off the path. We can drift from the path. We can take, retake control of our lives. We can begin to lose our faith in Jesus and place our faith back in that, in that which kills. We can begin to go back to what William Little, the mole of Hackney did, which is dig holes and compromise the whole foundation. And so we need to understand this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That, that's, that is active faith. It is no longer I who live, but now Christ who lives in me. And what, what Paul is saying is that there's this incredible supernatural thing that happens, that justification is not just a statement over your life. It's just like you never sinned. No, it's an, it's an reality in your life based upon the historical Christ event. And that reality is that your justification also includes your regeneration, that you have been born again. So people say, well, I was born this way. You've been born again. But stop using that as an excuse. Yes, we're broken people. We're flawed people. We're glitchy people. But God has the ability to redeem our brokenness, to take our messed up stories and weave it into his redemptive purposes. And the crucified life means being alive in Jesus. It's not just trusting in his death, but it's being empowered by his life. I have died with Christ and I have risen into the power by his Holy Spirit to reflect him. So here we have justification in its fullest sense. And, it, and really, we think of it, justification by faith and participation in Christ represent two facets of a single center. Here we have, here we have justification, God intervening to bring back in line what was out of alignment in human beings and their relationship with the divine, then participating in Christ, or should we say Christ's participation in us is an essential component of justification. We can say once again that Jesus does not simply mediate between alienated sinners and an angry God, but the self-giving love of Jesus is the direct representation of God's initiation and gracious favor, because what does it say? In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, we find here that Jesus wasn't getting in between the sinner and an angry father, but Jesus actually on the cross was both the judge and the judged in our place. And when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he was reflecting the very heart of the Father toward us. For we are told in John 3.16, the most known verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he intervened. How? Through his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Be realigned into right relationship, justified by our faith in him, total dependence upon him. Jesus is Lord, I am not. And that faith in him leads to the transformation of the life as we daily die to the lie of who God never intended us to be, 
that we might come alive in him. And all the things that we do, all the practices that we participate in are to be driven by the central fact that God has already moved toward us. He is always previous. His grace came to us when we were still dead in our sin. It doesn't take any credit for our salvation, but it is total yieldedness to him that he might work through us in love. For it is by love that the law is fulfilled. And it is by our love for one another that we evidence that we have been saved by faith. So guys, this is it. This is the gospel. Is this your foundation? Are you justified by faith in Christ Jesus? Are you dead to law and are you alive in Christ? This is the center of the foundation that will keep us building the good life rather than digging holes for ourselves toward meaninglessness, toward hopelessness. We want to be life givers, reflectors of King Jesus in everything that we do. And as we fail in that attempt, we pick each other up because we are objects of God's grace and we are called to live this out together. And I pray that we would be a church that fully grasps the gospel. Amen?